on this episode of The Kinked Wire. The CPT code may have certain required elements, and if you don't put all of those in your report, you don't get credit for doing the procedure. Or if, if the coders go ahead and code it, you could get audited later. So somebody goes to jail for fraudulent coding, you'll be on the line as well as the coder as the interventional radiologist because you are ultimately responsible for what you bill. Welcome to the Kinked Wire the Interventional Radiology Podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. And this episode is brought to you by Boston Scientific. Learn more at bostonscientific.com slash io. In this episode, Kinkedwire host Ron Krakow speaks with interventional radiologist Kathy Kroll about how IRs can make sure they're getting appropriately reimbursed and what SIR has done to fight Medicare cuts. It's uh, so great to have you here. Really appreciate it. It's a real treat for us. I trust you're, you're doing well under the COVID circumstances. We're honing in today a little bit on reimbursement issues for IR, particularly as it relates to IRs and training, a lot of whom have pointed out that they don't really receive any training. What are your thoughts about that in terms of how we educate our trainees in terms of reimbursement, which, you know, obviously is, is critically important. Well, it is critically important. And to your point, I don't think most faculty were trained and so are probably in general not comfortable training residents or fellows. So we have done a number of things to try to address that. Um, We've added modules into the fellow spring practicum. It's gone into the core curriculum. And I know we have given numbers of talks on webinars at the annual meeting, and those are archived and accessible. And the health policy economics team, Mia Karoma in particular, has put a lot of effort into making those accessible on the website. More work will go into that, but there is a lot of material there that you can access. You can also ask people. You can ask questions as a member of SIR. You have free access. You can ask as many questions of the coding people as you want, and people like me are always happy to help. That's terrific. I mean, and, you know, I think it's it's great to shed a light on that. You know, many of the folks who trained us, you know, may not have had this kind of training so that, you know, there's a reason that this gap exists in our education. There are some, too, who probably say, well, I don't want to get involved in coding. Let's just let the coders deal with that. Uh, you know, I'm just going to do my cases and so on and so forth. How do you feel about that or what's your take on that? When I first started doing education and coding, I always said that the very best way to code and get get it accurate was for the interventional radiologist to do the coding themselves, because you're in the procedure, you know what you did. And to do that, you had to have some knowledge of the codes so you could understand what needed to be documented. I don't think that's true anymore. It's just gotten so much more complex and, and IRs are so busy, but I still think you have to have some knowledge. If you leave it all to your coding staff, you have to ask yourself, are they perfect? Well, no, none of us as coders are perfect. None of us. And they can only code perfectly what you tell them that you did. Mm. And if you don't understand the code structure, you may not put in key elements. To code a certain procedure, the CPT code may have certain required elements. And if you don't put all of those in your report, you don't get credit for doing the procedure. Or if you get credit, if the coders go ahead and code it, you could get audited later and they could say, oh, we shouldn't have paid you for that because it wasn't a complete service. So 
you're a little bit in danger if you have no interaction with the coders and don't know anything about it. You are still ultimately responsible. If somebody goes to jail for fraudulent coding, say, you'll, you'll be on the line as well as the coder, as the interventional radiologist, because you are ultimately responsible for what you bill. I can't imagine that any individual interventional radiologist can know all that you need to know anymore, unless you're just a fool like me that's really nerdy and likes this stuff. <laughs> but you still have to have a lot of communication with your coders. They want to help you. They want to get it right. What you document and what is coded is not only important for what you make and what you earn and what your bottom line shows, but it's important for so many other things. It's important for the hospital because they typically will bill off of the physician's documentation as well. And while our fees are fairly high, the technical fees that the hospital would bill, or if you're even in an OBL that would be billed, are significantly higher than the professional fees. And to lose that because it's not documented correctly would be bad. Uh, it leads to you not getting the equipment you need, the staff that you need to support the, the practice that you've built. So that is one other area where it's not just you that matters. These codes also are used for data. It's not just for billing, but all of these codes, the ICD codes and the CDT mm -hmm. codes, are used to collect data on what's being done for patients. And that data is aggregated and then looked at and evaluated. And we make decisions on policy based on those codes. So there's a lot of reasons to get it right. Those are all very compelling reasons. And getting into a little bit of the nitty gritty, you mentioned CPT, uh, ICD-10, these kinds of things. So for a lot of people, there's this sort of alphabet soup of acronyms, RVU. You did mention some resources, but just, just a, a quick overview of you know what an RVU is. Uh, so there are basically two kinds of codes, ICD codes and uh, CPT codes. And the ICD-10 codes is just the latest version of ICD, and that is the diagnosis codes. And they supposedly have diagnosis for anything that a patient might present with. It It's not perfect, but it's an international coding system that helps us gather data. So you have to have a diagnosis. And then the CPT codes are the actual services that you provide to the patient. And they're just codes that say, I did this service. And those go in in a bill electronically and if they match up, if the service matches the diagnosis, then you get paid. Medicare is required to pay you within 30 days if you send in an electronic bill. They may come back after that and say, well, we didn't get it right. But if those ICD-10 and CPT codes match up and it's a clean bill when it's submitted, you get paid right away. And so those are just language to tell mm. the reader that, that this is what you did. But it's also language that, like we said, aggregates data in a much larger area. CPT codes are created by a panel of physicians. That's It's controlled by the AMA. I actually sat on that panel. We have SIR advisors to that panel, and they develop every single code. So if you have a new procedure, a new service for patients, you have to go to this committee and go through the process, and they can approve a code that then goes into the book. The way it gets valued is once the CPT panel passes it and gets the nomenclature right, makes the descriptor very clear, 
this is what the service is and this is what it includes. Then it goes to the RUC panel, which is the Relative Value Update Committee, and it's another committee in AMA, and I sat on that panel for a number of years as well. And that committee is also composed of physicians that decides the relative value of each and every CPT code. RVU's relative value units are just a way of comparing the value of every single code to each other. They're in general, is relativity. It's not a perfect system either. But the RUC panel will then decide how many RVUs, and there are different RVUs. There's work RVUs, and that's how much effort it takes the physician. Usually it's based on time and intensity, time being a large factor. Also, risk to the physician, risk to the patient are included in those. Mm -hmm. And then there's also practice expense RVUs, and those are really important if you're in an OBL, for instance, because all of the technical component of the service is then valued into the practice expense RVUs. And if you bill in an office as a global, you would get both the professional and the technical fees, a global payment for the service. If you're in a hospital, you would bill the professional side, the physician side, and the hospital would get to bill the technical side. Once the RUC committee decides those RVUs, those are sent over to CMS and CMS gets one more crack at it. Historically, they usually just rubber stamped what the RUC would say. Recently, they've been taking more active role in that and um, the actual value for the code gets published in the final rule at the end of every year. Does CMS also set the conversion factor for the RVU? Or Correct. actually, the conversion factor is based on a, a lot of data, but CMS is legally required to maintain a certain budget and you can't spend more than this amount, mm -hmm. say. Uh, this is kind of simplified, but that's kind of how I look at it. So they look at all the expenditures from the year before. They look at all the codes and kind of figure out what they think the frequency is going to be then what the spend is. And then they have to figure out a conversion factor to make all of those RVUs totaled up for the entire Medicare population to stay within budget. So it, it can go up and down depending on what they think is going to happen with the overall budget. But then that conversion factor is a number. This year it's like $34.89, I think, for each RVU. And then that's just every RVU, when you submit a bill, it's paid by the RVUs of the CPT codes times that conversion factor. There, there are a few other minor tweaks. There's um, credit for geographical. Where you are, if you're in a large city, they know your overhead's probably going to be higher than if you're in a rural community. So there, there are a few little tweaks. The good news is that Medicare is legally required then if they are going to pay for a service, they have to pay based on those RVUs that are published. They don't get to say, oh, we want to pay you less today, or we want to pay you more mm. tomorrow, or we like Dr. Smith better, so we'll heat right. him more. Um, it, they have to pay that amount. They're not required to pay. They can decide that they won't cover a certain service for a certain patient, but in general, they pay for most everything. It has to be um, considered medically necessary for the patient. And that is very, mm -hmm. that's never been defined. And so you've got a lot of leeway as a physician to say, yes, this is medically necessary for my patient. But Medicare but, will pay based on the covered version factor and those CPT codes 
other carriers are legally required to follow those RVUs. And they tend to follow them in general, but they don't have to use the same conversion factor. So your private payer payments may be less, maybe more. Typically, they're more than Medicare, but not always. And just circling back for a second, when you when you say sort of uh, documenting or talking about uh, documenting medical necessity, that gets back to to the concept you mentioned earlier that IRs really need to be aware of what they're doing and what goes into all this because you've got to be able to substantiate that the procedure was necessary or none of this other stuff will matter eventually because you won't get paid or if you are paid, uh, you know that may raise problems for you down the road or or red flags. So the RVU and the the conversion factor, so this year it's 34 and some odd cents. Next year, it may be entirely different. Is that right? Correct. And then there's this specialty designation of 94. What is that exactly? So when your bill is submitted to Medicare, especially, there's a box that you fill in for your specialty. And interventional radiology is specifically 94. And it makes no difference what specialty you are, you should get paid the same. It doesn't matter, but it matters in those big data, trying to figure out who's an IR and who's doing what. And I think the majority of our membership bills as diagnostic radiology. So we just get lumped into this big pool and we don't make a big difference in the diagnostic radiology pool. We're still seen, for instance, as non-patient facing physicians, which puts us in a different bucket. And we are always clawing and struggling to try to convince policymakers that we are patient facing, that we do take care of patients, that we do make medical decisions, that we're not just sitting there reading films that somebody else ordered. So it doesn't make any difference on your payment at all, but it's more a matter of helping us track where our members are and what they're doing and helping us to paint that picture for policymakers of what IRs actually are. I see. So a vascular surgeon colleague um, might have been upstairs in the OR doing the precise procedure I was doing down in the IR suite, uh, wouldn't put the 9-4, I would, and we'd get paid the same because it was the exact same procedure. However, that data would all get crunched differently to show that, you know, this many IRs we're doing at a vascular surgeon typically is seen, I would assume, as a more of a patient-facing physician, and that data would break up accordingly. Is that is that a way to look at it? Correct. When you look at diagnostic radiology, they're not reporting evaluation and management services. They're not doing lots of procedures. And so, yes, whereas the vascular surgeon, they are doing pretty much only vascular work. When you look at DR, you cannot break out what IRs are. And it, it puts us just in a different bucket, I think, with policymakers. Okay. Maybe IR specialty designation and the IR fellowship, do you think that is something that would affect that or impact that? It tends to be your um, group. I could never get my group to put me as a a 94. I was always a, a diagnostic radiologist too. And it's just easier for them to lump everybody. And unless you can convince them that it's worthwhile having them change that for you. I think that's where you can make that change. It has to be at your group or billing level. That's good to know. All physicians, I think, always fear dreaded reimbursement cuts coming every year. We talked a little bit about that. Does that happen with the conversion factor at that level? Is that where you were saying that at times CMS might be getting a little bit uh, more interventional in a way to adjust some of the RVUs coming out of the rock? Or how does that work exactly? 
We have known for a long time that CMS believes that procedures are overvalued and that cognitive medicine is undervalued. Cognitive being evaluation and management, primary care types of services. We have done a lot to mitigate that over the years strategically. That's where office-based labs came out of. We understood that professional fees were going to get cut no matter what we did. We did a lot to slow that process down and to make the cuts as small as possible, but we knew we couldn't stop that. That is a national policy that has seemed to be a way to improve medicine and improve care. So we decided, I don't know, 20 years ago now, that we should try to help our members tap into the technical fees because that's where there's even more money than on the professional side. And so we developed that strategy and it took several years to get practice expense values for doing these procedures in the office, that that was new methodology and we had to develop that and go through all the the sources to get that done. So- Mm -hmm. That was one thing we did. We also started telling people they really needed to do evaluation and management services. The payments shifting toward ENM, we do ENM, get paid for that service. And some people say, well, I don't want to do any ENM. Well, you do ENM. You do ENM. You look at a patient. Something as simple as, oh, they send you an order and say it's time to take this abscess catheter out. You don't mm-hmm. just take the abscess catheter out. You might say that in your report abscess catheter removed into report. And you spent 30 minutes doing that and you get paid zero. But if you would take two more minutes and write down, this abscess catheter was placed for a diverticular abscess. It's been draining less every day. Now it's down to less than five cc's a day. Patient's afebrile, the site is clear. Um, Patient feels fine, bowels are moving normally. I'm deciding, it is my Mm -hmm. professional opinion that now it's time to take this catheter out catheter was taken out, patient was given instructions, dressing was applied, boom. Now you can bill. It's taking Mm. two minutes instead of 30 minutes, but now you can bill for that service. So we do those things. We're just not documenting them well. And I do also think that long-term there is competition as far as other specialties trying to do the same procedures we do. And those other specialties do have control over patients. We can have control over patients too. We can be the rainmakers. We can have the patients referred to us. And then the hospital sees you as somebody who's bringing business to them. And if you're bringing in patients that they wouldn't get otherwise, that's a real value for hospitals. So I think that's another strategy of trying to offset what we know are going to be continued cuts in professional payments. So this year we were scheduled to have a relatively huge cut And at the last second, that got mitigated. We got cut, but not as much. And that was mitigated because of COVID. And and the argument was that all physician volumes are down, all incomes down. Mm. Physicians are under siege trying to take care of these really sick patients. And this is not the year to make those cuts. Mm. So Congress passed a bill saying, okay, we won't cut it as much this year. We will forego that overriding rule of budget neutrality. But those cuts are coming. They are going to be here next year. We are not out of the woods on that. So you still have to think of ways to mitigate. And really that payment is being pushed to E&M 
we're doing it. It's easy to do that. It's a way to build your practice. It's a way to show value to your hospital, to your group, to your referring physicians. You get to know your patients. And it's a way to show value and puts us in a different bucket as far as policymakers. We are people who are taking care of patients, making decisions, and we need to be in the patient-facing bucket and not the non-patient-facing bucket. And I think, you know, you said it really well earlier, we're essentially doing that anyway. I mean, take that extra two minutes, put it in the report and document it to substantiate that this is exactly what we're doing. It's exactly who we are. Uh, we believe in superb patient care, and that's why we do this. We're no different in that way than the orthopedic surgeon who follows up his or her shoulder uh, replacement surgery uh, a week later. So I think that's spot on. And I think that cautionary message you left us with there that, hey, these cuts are coming, I think really reinforces the need for everybody to pay very close attention to the stuff that we've talked about today. Again, I just can't emphasize enough how critically important this topic is. And you've really shined a light on this for everybody and, and, and hopefully whetted everybody's whistle to really dig into this. We ask everybody a thought-provoking question. If for whatever reason uh, you weren't an interventional radiologist, what would you have done and why? Yeah, that is a thought-provoking question. (laughs) I am so lucky that I fell into this when I did. I grew up on a farm and didn't have any guidance counseling, didn't know many Mm. things. I thought for a while I was going to play piano professionally. My father quickly that would not be suitable. I think my favorite thing besides IR, actually my favorite job has been being a mom and now a grandma. But I, there was not a single day in my career that I didn't tell myself how lucky I was to be able to be a doctor. It was new for women to be able to be in the field. IR still had very few women, um, and yet I was mentored by some of the great leaders, early leaders of IR, who let me be involved. And there was not a single day in my career that I just didn't tell myself how lucky I was to be able to help patients and to be able to do these fantastic things to change people's lives. So hard for me. I probably would have done something in medicine, but I got found IR. That's amazing. So uh, we'll never know if uh, there was a great pianist out there that, uh, but I guess now. You, you, you can do that now, too, though. So I am doing uh, that now. I am. Oh, excellent. Excellent. As I say, this has been a, a wonderful time. Uh, I really do appreciate it. So thank you very much for taking part in this. Thank you, Warren. That was Dr. Kathy Kroll explaining the coding and reimbursement processes. We thank Dr. Kroll for her time, Boston Scientific for supporting this episode, and you for listening to The King's Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Crago. Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at rq.surweb.org.